return uh, to continue considering the answer that the preacher supplies to his own question that uh, he issued back in chapter 6, in 6 verse 12. Who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? You might also remember that uh, when he asked that question, he had another question too. He uh, immediately followed that question with this one, who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Topic that's already come up this morning in our singing as well, which is also answered in our text this morning, which begins actually at verse uh, 11 of chapter 7, but I'm going to begin the reading back at verse 1 for the sake of context. Verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 7, after we pray. Father, we've already uh, been led in prayer by Elder Thomas this morning, uh, seeking wisdom. So we add our amen to his prayer uh, by asking once more, supply what we humbly ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes 7, beginning at verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face is the heart made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools, this also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. What is good for us? Well, so far we've learned that it is good for us to reckon squarely and often face-to-face with uh, our mortality. 
with our coming death, and often also embrace uh, suffering and to mourn. The preacher has told us that it is good for us to listen to the wise, and it is good for us to wait wisely. Waiting wisely, he taught us last time, will mean looking to the Lord always, knowing that the end of a thing is better than its beginning, and therefore remaining patient always, not giving into impatience, not giving over to anger, not looking back and pining for the, the good old days, so-called, but looking ahead. Being forward-looking people, not looking backward, that is good for us. Today we learn that money is good for us. Uh, money is good. Money and inheritance of, of money is a good thing. Those who have money know how well money serves them. How it can protect or at least insulate a person from harm. You know, money can buy clothing, money can buy shelter, money can even protect us from the penalties of the civil law at times. I mean, witness any number of high-profile court cases recently. Money is not a bad thing. If you have money, thank God for it. Money is good. Ah, but wisdom, wisdom is better. Wisdom is far better. That seems to be the comparison with which this group of verses, verses 11 through 14, begins. The, the translation of verse 11 can be a bit tricky. We can read it as in the ESV, wisdom is good with an inheritance, uh, or it can be translated as a comparison. Wisdom is better than an inheritance. I think it is this latter idea, the comparison between money and wisdom, that seems to be the point, and I think that becomes clear when we glance down at verse 12. Truly, money and wisdom both offer protection, but the advantage of wisdom is that it preserves the life, the life of the one who possesses it. Now, wisdom isn't perfect, is it? We've learned that from, from Ecclesiastes. Wisdom is still imperfect, as Coalette has been at pains to tell us. Wisdom, as wonderful as it is, much better than folly, we've been reminded often in the last few weeks. Yet wisdom is still insufficient, isn't it? It's still insufficient for us to wrap our fingers all the way around the key that unlocks the mysteries of life. Wisdom falls short of supplying us the answers that we so desperately desire to our every question. And, and yet, wisdom is still to be desired. W wisdom is still to be pursued, to be valued, to be lived by. Well, here, very near the center point of the book of Ecclesiastes, we come also very near to the center point of wisdom. It is the consider this is the center of, of, of wisdom at this point anyway, it is the consideration of God. The consideration of God's ways and God's works. Now, wisdom itself is not ultimate. God is. Uh, wisdom is 
penultimate because God is ultimate. Wisdom at its best sets its mind on, considers the things of God, ponders on the way and on the ways and on the works of God in our lives and in his world. Two times in these few verses, we are called upon to consider. Consider God. Fools never do this, do they? You know, fools never, they never stop to consider God. And in fact, what the fool says in his heart, what? Do you remember the fool says in, the heart, in his heart, there, yes, I hear you, there is no God. That's what the fool says. That's the ultimate in foolishness, isn't it? It's ultimately foolish neither to fear God nor even to consider him in the equation of life. And so foolishness just sort of trips its way through along the way of life, unmindful of anything above the level of the sidewalk in front of it, with no transcendent thoughts, no heavenly considerations, no place for God in its calculations. The ultimate in wisdom on the opposite end is to weigh and to measure all the matters of life against God, against the sovereignty of God, and according to His ultimate rule over all things, over absolutely everything, over every molecule in His creation, over every event in His providence. That's exactly where the preacher, where, where Kohelet, brings us today to consider God. And in light of God, of God's sovereignty, that is, to calibrate our view of life. Our circumstances, the events that visit us along the way of life. Everything, really, all of it. And the preacher starts where, of course, so many of our conversations start, or at least the place where they and our thinking soon turn, the crooked things. The crooked things, the, the, you know, the things that don't make sense, the things that baffle us, the things that cause us so much discomfort and confusion and pain. The crooked things. And of course you should start there. I mean, how many of us, when things are just going wonderfully, you know, swimmingly along, when the gas tank is full and, and the kids are, are healthy and the grass is growing green and lush and, and the bills are paid with some left over in the bank and, and the job is going well and there's food on the table and even more in the fridge. I mean, how many of us... How, how, how many of us are found struggling with the issues of life on those kind of days? Is there, it is not there that we struggle. No, it's in the face of the crooked. It's, it's when our plans fall through. It's when our friends betray. It's when our family falls apart or seems to be falling apart. It's, it's when the money runs out. It's when our health fails. It's, it's when we lose a loved one. It's then that we stop. In verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? 
Now, the preacher is not being fatalistic here. It might sound to you like he is. He's not. He's being realistic. He's a realist, isn't he? We certainly learned that about him. And he's being realistic in the most important way. He is saying that our situation, whatever it is that you are facing, whatever your situation, however crooked it may be to your view, is nevertheless the way that God has sovereignly directed it to be. Thomas Boston, the 17th century Scottish Presbyterian prolific pastor, wrote a book entitled The Crook in the Lot, based on this single verse of Ecclesiastes. What he meant by that expression is that it is in the lot of every person, you say sometimes that's my lot in life, that's what we're talking about, it is in the lot of every person to experience something crooked. Something crooked in your life, maybe, maybe many crooked things. Thomas Boston writes, while we are here, there will be some cross events, as well as agreeable ones. Sometimes things are softly and agreeably gliding on, but by and by there is some incident which alters the course, grates us, pains us. Everybody's lot in this world has some crook in it. Boston certainly knew of what he spoke. Many years ago as a young pastor, I read his autobiography full of passion and piety and affliction, and perplexity. Six of his ten children died in infancy or in tender youth. His lot in life was very, very often hard in ways that we can hardly imagine. But not a single one of us or any in the hearing of my voice right now are immune to crooks in our lot. Fact is, every life, everyone's lot in life includes those things that are crooked, that are difficult, that are even senseless, to us anyway, that weigh us down, weigh heavily on our hearts, that are terrible afflictions to us, every one of us. Don't imagine that anyone around you doesn't have this. Some of those last a short time. Some of those crooks are long and arduous and last a lifetime. And, and try as we might, our attempts are futile to change them. You know, sometimes those crooks take the form of relational difficulties and heartbreaks. As we sing in this house from time to time, friends may fail me and foes assail me. Even family members may turn their backs on us and break our hearts. 
Or it could be that the desire of some unmarried person is, is to be married, but God is simply not providing that, that person, that believing Christian to marry. Or it could be a married couple who so desires to have children and raise them for the Lord, and, yet, and they cry out day after day after day to the Lord, Give us children, Lord, to raise for you. But month after month after month and year after year after year passes by and the Lord does not open the womb. Could be world events like, like war that cause a major kink in otherwise comfortable lives. Our brothers and sisters in Sudan and Ukraine, boy, they're learning about that in spades, aren't they, right now? Or economic woes may come to us. There was a crook in many a person's life and their lot. Remember when the financial collapse of 2008 struck and, and folks who were planning to retire that year watched as their retirement accounts just virtually disappeared right in front of their eyes, like overnight. Some crooks in the lot take the form of health struggles and diseases that waylay us for a day or a week or a year while others are lifelong and even terminal. God reached, you remember, and touched Jacob's thigh, the, the socket of his hip and Jacob limped away from that encounter. I can't help but wonder if J Jacob limped for the rest of his life that day on, even to the day of issuing uh, his dying blessing to each of his sons, Joseph, uh, to the sons of Joseph that is bowing in worship, remember, as he was on the head of his staff. The Apostle Paul, this choice servant of the Lord. Remember how he suffered some sort of thorn in the flesh as he described it. And no matter how many times he begged and pleaded with the Lord to remove this from me, God said, no. But my grace is sufficient for you. The affliction continued. It was the crook in Paul's lot, wasn't it? The fact is, every person, everyone, every single person who lives in this world is a crook in his lot. Something that is painful or, and difficult, everyone does. Maybe you read in yesterday's newspaper about the life of one of the people who prayed at our local uh, National Day of Prayer observation a couple of weeks ago, the Reverend Jonathan Bonar. Uh, pastor at Pleasant Grove Baptist Church on the other side of town. How he battled stage four colon cancer in his 30s, but before becoming a cancer survivor, how he suffered a birth defect that caused him heart problems as a teenager. As a result of that, the Lord really got a hold of my heart during that period, says Pastor Bonar, and started making me think about life, what life was really all about. There's something about coming close to your own death that makes you think differently about life, he says. <laughs> Sounds like he's quoting from Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? 
At a young age, I was thinking about things my peers were not even considering. Well, that's what the preacher wants for you and wants for me, dear flock, for us to think about the things that our peers aren't even considering. Wisdom stops to consider, and and rather than getting angry, like the fool we read about last week and whose heart anger lodges, rather than getting impatient in our pride or pining for, for the imagined good old days, wisdom turns its eyes to God and says, even with tears running down the face with voice hitching in prayer to the Lord, this is your doing, O Lord. This is your doing. And it is right because it is your will, not my will, but thine be done, O Lord. That's the voice of wisdom. That is wisdom. That's true wisdom. How totally different from the world, isn't it? A world who likes to talk about fate. What terrible fates have met us in our lives, right? About those things that come to us by chance. And the best we can do is to kind of lean into the wind and then grunt our way through through life, our way along, grope through the darkness, and just hope that fates have better for us tomorrow. And how different from mistaken Christians who who will not refuse to embrace the Bible's plain teaching about the sovereignty of God, insisting instead that the bad things, the hard things, they're not God's doing. Oh, no, no, no. God has nothing to do with that. That's Satan. That's not God. That's Satan. I don't know how many times I've been talking to to, to some conversation, sometimes with a suffering person, Christian at the hospital or at their home or whatever, enjoying some great conversation about, about our sovereign Father, only to have someone to stop me along the way and inform me and the other person from the vast treasure store of their knowledge and wisdom, oh, no, 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 Pastor John, this is not from God, no, 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 this is Satan, God's not doing this, Satan is doing this, as if we somehow <laughs> need to clear God's name, you know? Protect God from, I don't know, from himself, I suppose. Refusing to receive the preacher's plain counsel here, indeed, to refuse even God himself who says it himself and plainly so in Isaiah, I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light. I create darkness. I make well-being I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Remember Lamentations asking, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Amos agrees. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And Job answers all of those those questions 
unflinchingly, even in the throes of affliction, even in the teeth of, of the crooks, of the crooked providences, visited punishingly on him one after another after another. The loss of his wealth, the loss of his children, the loss of his friends' respect, the loss of his dear wife's love. Remember? Remember his answer? You remember what Job says? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Who knows what crooks the preacher was facing in his life or what was foremost in his mind when he wrote those words. We do know know something, don't we, of of Solomon's life and its painful failures. So many of them self-inflicted, others from external sources, but whether self-inflicted or from externals, wherever these crooks came from, all of them under the sovereign hand of God. Here's what we might call Kohelet's Job moment. Verse 14, In the day of prosperity be joyful. In the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Light and darkness, good and bad, prosperity and adversity, all of them, all of them, God has sovereignly made. The day of prosperity and the day of adversity, God has made the one as well as the other. Consider then, Christians, consider, consider with me, dear flock, God. God has done this. Your God, your Father, is sovereign. Now why, we want to ask, why has God done this? Well, well, there are many biblical answers to that question. You know there are because we've gone over them together in this house, haven't we? There are many answers to that question that the Bible supplies us, and we've considered many of them together even recently in this house of worship. But today the preacher supplies us here with just one simple answer. So we're going to add this to the long list of the things we've considered over the years from Scripture about why God brings affliction. God does this, verse 14. Brings affliction or brings prosperity, by the way. God does this, verse 14. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. With all of the twists and all of the turns, with all of the highs and all of the lows in your life, the prosperity, the adversity, we can't know what the future holds, can we? There's no predicting it. We cannot know what the future holds, but this much we do know, and this much we must do, submit to and trust in the one who holds the future. I fall back on my grandfather's advice to me in our wonderful conversations Not long before his death, John, we don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. 
Martin Luther put it a little more sophisticatedly, if that's a word. Let us be content with the things that are present and commit ourselves into the hand of God who alone knows and controls both the past and the future. On the good days, Christians, be happy. Oh, be happy. Be so happy. You know, C.S. Lewis was only being faithful to the constant and emphatic teaching of the Bible when he, he said that it is a Christian's duty to be as happy as he can be. That's your duty. Be as happy as you can be. In the day of prosperity, be happy. And on the bad, the hard days of adversity, consider. Consider the work of God. This is what's good for us. It's to trust in the Lord's sovereign purposes and, and his sovereign plan. Always, always. Remember with me now, dear ones, that it was, it was on the very worst day of all of human history when the lot was as crooked as it could possibly be be for one man in particular that on the cross Jesus Christ our Savior died for us, for you, for me to give us the truest hope and happiness forever. The man of sorrows is also the God of joy. So it's not at all unreasonable, is it then, as we learned recently in evening worship, that we should rejoice, says Paul. Rejoice always. And again I say, Paul, rejoice. The suffering Savior is also our risen Lord. And in Him we overcome. Because ours is the cross, the grave, the sky. Wisdom prepares us to deal with the reality of, of death, doesn't it? It helps us to take the long-term, the forward-looking perspective as we wait patiently on the Lord. True wisdom preserves the life of those who possess it now in this life, and then when it comes to die, leads us to eternal life. Because ultimately, who is our wisdom? Christ is our wisdom. Yes, He Himself has become our wisdom in life and in death. Charles Ward had this kind of wisdom. Ward served as a soldier in the Union Army with the 32nd Massachusetts Volunteers. And in one of his last letters home, he wrote... I hope I may come home again, but life here is uncertain. And he was exactly right about the uncertainties of life and death. A few days later, he was mortally wounded in the bloody wheat field at Gettysburg. Although he lingered for a little while, Ward died within the week. 
In his last letter home, he wrote, Dear Mother, I may not again see you, but do not fear for your tired soldier boy. Death has no fears for me. My hope is still firm in Jesus. Meet me and Father, capital F, in heaven with all my dear friends. I have no special message to send you, but bid you all a happy farewell. Your affectionate and soldier son, Charles Ward. What is good for us? Wisdom is. Wisdom that looks squarely on death and lays its lessons to heart. Wisdom that embraces suffering while looking patiently ahead for what God, all that God has promised us in Christ. Wisdom that thoughtfully casts itself on the sovereignty of God in both the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. And having thus lived well, also to die well.